You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. If you're a frequent listener, I want to let you know about listener support for All Things Video. I often joke that doing this podcast is my favorite way I lose money every month. There's a lot of time and hard work that goes into producing each episode and hiring a professional editor to make them sound great. It really is a labor of love, so I'm happy to do it, but we'd really appreciate your contributions to help improve future episodes. If you'd like to make a small monthly donation, please visit anchor.fm slash all dash things dash video slash support. And we'll include that link in the show notes. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Greg Campanis, SVP of Global Digital Networks at Blue Ant Media. Greg, welcome to the show. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start off by kind of going through your background. And I noticed that you studied business at Georgetown, I and did. then you started your career in consulting. Did. What, wow. what uh, brought you from consulting East Coast to media and being on the West Coast? Uh, it's a great question. So I was in management consulting. I'm going to show my age, but this was before the first internet bubble. And we were doing a lot of internet consulting work, uh, helping build different internet technologies, internets, extranets, websites for different brands. And we started to do a lot at how technology was going to impact the media space with some tests we were doing with Intel to show off the power of Intel chips. And I remember seeing the first time I saw online video, it was for a hotel to show what their campus looked like or what their resort looked like, which now sounds like, yeah, you see that in orbits, right? But in 1990. Uh, 1998, it was like, wow, this is awesome to see like this 360 view of like this hotel in Hawaii. So I got really excited about how technology was going to impact how we consume media. And so decided that's what I wanted to get into. So came to LA. And so you come out to LA for grad school, Mm -hmm. right? UCLA, get get the MBA, and then end up working in business development for entertainment. Yep. So what did you learn in the early days on the traditional media side? Yeah, I, I, so I came to get my MBA because I was in D.C. My background was really more in like politics and government and then consulting like on the East Coast. So I knew no one in the industry. Uh, now Georgetown has a pretty healthy entertainment alumni group. But back then there was nothing. So I picked UCLA solely because I wanted to be able to intern and meet people. So pretty much the moment I came to L.A., just hit the ground, setting up meetings, informational interviews, like doing all the things they tell you to do. And at that point, all I knew is I wanted to be in the media space, and I didn't really know what that meant. So I spent a lot of time meeting with different folks, figuring out, well, do I want to be in TV? Do I want to be in movies? There wasn't really this concept of digital yet in the media space at that point. And then, you know, some people come to L.A. because they're huge movie fans and want to get into movies. Like, I like movies, but TV was always my thing. That's kind of how I grew up. So decided that's kind of the side I wanted to be on. Uh, and then as I was digging around a bit more, found the business development arena in, in media interesting because it, it was a good sort of transition for my consulting skills because, you know, it, in media, biz dev or biz dev corporate development is really kind of almost like an internal consultant. You kind of touch on everything, trying to figure out how to grow new businesses or where we're going as a company. So it was kind of a good. Yeah, it's a lot of strategy me. and problem solving. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And then particularly in E. Uh, that group at the time was very focused on what to do in the digital world, particularly around digital video. So that was the first time uh, when I was there, like Verizon launched their uh, video service, Vcast, I think it was called, if I recall, uh, back when we had flip phones, right? So 
um, kind of doing things like that, figuring out where was the future of celebrity entertainment. So this was pre-social, right? Pre-YouTube, pre-Facebook. Yeah, it was so. all .com yeah. back then. .com and mobile to a lesser extent. Uh -huh. You're making me feel old. <laughs> so, <laughs> so E was that. Uh, satellite radio just launched. So we launched like E on satellite radio. We were doing a lot of international launches for E, international channel launches. Uh, my main focus, though, was on the .com, some, some satellite radio stuff. We got into merchandise a lot uh, and DVDs was when TV on DVD was sort of a big thing. So like everything from like the Anna Nicole Smith show to Wild On, it was kind of an interesting time to me. Very cool. And then in 2006, you transitioned over to MTV. So still within the Viacom yep. portfolio, but at MTV, you worked on strategic planning and programming acquisitions. Uh, one of the biggest of which was the formation of the South Park Digital Studios. Yeah, so I, I, I uh, essentially got, I wanted to move back to New York was really what it came down to. So I um, I actually got a job first at Discovery uh, that was going to be in D.C. Uh, and then my entire group got laid off on the Friday before I was supposed to start. Oh, wow. So that was my first experience of, fuck, yeah. what am I doing? Uh, I was about to get married, too, if I recall. Oh, my goodness. Um, and then wound up moving to New York instead and, and getting a job with, with Viacom. The funny thing about that all is when I went back to my, uh, my business school essay, like, why do I want to go to business school? It was all about how I wanted to figure out where, so where the intersection of media and technology were going to be on and go forward. And like in that essay, the dream of mine was to eventually take that knowledge to go work for Comedy Central because I loved Comedy Central at that point and was watching it all the time. So it was kind of a dream come true to actually work there. Yeah, started the same thing with strategy biz devs. So we did a lot of looking at digital acquisitions. Um, we did some of the first deals for Comedy Central around licensing digital content to Netflix, Hulu, things like that. Comedy was probably one of the first ones to start really experiencing cord cutting in a, in a mm. serious way and seeing the impact of YouTube. Uh, and it helped build point. a lot of those subscription services. I mean, HBO, Netflix, yeah. comedy specials. 100%. Have a lot of audience. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting time to be there. Yeah, and then South Park, you know, getting to see South Park moving into the digital space in a, in a real way and getting to gaming and some of the areas where their brand just made natural sense. It was, it was kind of exciting time. South Park is this kind of fascinating property and you know because it's endured for so long it's maintained this position of cultural relevance and yet it's evolved significantly right so it's it's built this big brand and you set up digital studios as a joint venture between viacom and the creators matt stone trey parker uh, and then you actually ended up running that from kind of 2009 to 2013 right so tell us more about your experience deep inside south park Digital. yeah so there i worked for the i worked for the general manager of the joint venture who was one of the executive producers on the show and that basically started because South Park was an obvious fit for video games. That's really what it came down to. They had a really bad experience with some old South Park video games that some people love and some people don't. But it was like, there was a racer one where they were all 3D. There was a snowball fighting one. You know, we thought it made sense to do video games, but there was kind of a lack of trust, I think, a little bit between the creators and the digital team at the time. They just felt like they'd been burned on the past projects and they yeah. wanted to be careful about the brand. Yeah, and essentially that was because of, I mean, that was back in the era when video game publishers were just doing license deals for these brands and like taking a crappy game and just slapping the label on it mm -hmm. and thinking that would push millions of units. And A, that's not really the South Park audience. And then B, creatively, that's really not the South Park creators. And then also, we weren't really being that aggressive with South Park, even on the on the internet, for a similar reason, right? So the idea was to create this joint venture that they 
kind of owned and operated. They could have their own people kind of helping to move forward the digital vision, get into gaming, some of those things. They would be co-located with, uh, with the, the show and kind of give them some power, I guess, essentially over kind of the, where the vision of the brand was going to go on, on the digital platform and, and hope to help move some of those things forward. So that was the basic concept. They were hiring for people there. I think it was just helping the general manager interview people. And then at some point she was like, hey, why don't you just come out here and move? I had been in New York for a while at that point and, uh, you know, missed LA, to be quite honest, missed the weather. Okay. Uh, it was a crappy winter, I think, that, <laughs> that year in New York. So she didn't uh, have to twist her arm. No, it's 100%. Yeah. And so, uh, so move back. When I think about South Park 2, it really paved the way along with The Simpsons, right, as being some of these two iconic adult animation uh, shows that have endured for so long. And to a lesser extent, probably Futurama and Beavis and Butthead were kind of these early predecessors to what we have today, like BoJack Horseman, mm-hmm. uh, Rick and Morty, right? Some of these sure. really successful adult animation titles. Mm-hmm. And, and I think for a long time, people thought, well, animation, it's cartoons, it's for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, how did South Park help change that thought process for people? Yeah, you know, I think the, the few things on that. The, the one thing that always amazed me about South Park and still does, it was actually my favorite chart to show whenever when we were trying to pitch the South Park video game was, you know, at that point, the show had been around maybe 15 years, I want to say. And it was a chart showing the average age of the South Park viewer year over year. It was essentially flat. Like it was the same for 15 years. The average age of the viewer was the same um, because South Park had this great ability to reinvent itself and, and bring in new young viewers. And, you know, sometimes the older viewers left, sometimes they stayed. But either way, that the, the you know, it stayed in the zeitgeist and continued. And, and so... To me, that's always been part of the power of the show is how close they're able to keep the finger on the pulse of, of what's going on. I mean, part of that is the way the production timeline works and how tight it is to when it airs. But, it, you know, it's amazing that the, they've been able to continue that for so long. So it's cool to see that you have this experience experimenting with digital, with traditional entertainment IP. But eventually you kind of cross the chasm, right, and, and go into digital first entertainment. Tell us a little bit more about that thought process and what made you make that career change. Yeah, so part of the reason I left comedy for South Park is because at that point, like YouTube was just starting to blow up at that point. Uh, obviously, Viacom didn't like that it was blowing up at that point. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of which, Viacom famously sued lot, uh, yeah. YouTube for yeah, what, we $100 million? To, we weren't allowed to work on YouTube. Correct. Yeah, wouldn't post any Stop. content, yeah, took all. it all down, wouldn't yeah. monetize anything. Yeah. And that policy has just changed in the last few years, yeah. right? With the creation of Viacom Digital Studios and, you know, some of the new leadership coming in. Yeah, I mean, they're doing a great job there now. I mean, the team they have there now is awesome. And, you know, particularly, so the, the reason I left, one of the reasons I left Comedy Central for South Park is I, I kind of believed that the idea of a network brand was going to become less relevant over time, Right outside of some big brands and that, you know, South Park had a much more kind of consumer allegiance to it and viewer allegiance than to some other brands. I remember when we were putting together the the projections for South Park's website that we wanted to launch, I had someone in a meeting somewhere, uh, I don't even know if I should say this, but they're like, you know, this would make this site bigger than VH1. And I was like, yeah. Because people care about South Park more than they do the H1 yeah. as a brand. yeah. And so that that's kind of why I left for South Park. And then when I was at South Park was when I started to realize the power of social, right? While we couldn't do that much on YouTube, we were super aggressive on Facebook before monetization on Facebook, sadly. And we grew to be like, at one point when I left, we were like the number two or three like brand on Facebook. 
period in the story. I think it was like, I can't remember who it was, like Rihanna or Beyonce, someone that we yeah, kept sure. like being like right behind. And the amount of viewership and the engagement and the feedback we would get from viewers on a like a live basis was pretty powerful. And so that's when I really started to understand the power of social video. And that's kind of how I made that that switch into kind of being more social first part of the industry. So I want to unpack those two pieces a little bit more. Uh, the first being this idea that, you know, programming brands are not recognizable to youth anymore. It's much more about the brand IP, right? And you think about that, certainly that's true in television. I'm sure if you ask kids today, no one knows who Viacom is. You know, the, the brand equity value decline of something like VH1 or MTV has certainly gone downhill, but people know, you know, the shows that they like to watch, the social influencers, they like to follow the traditional celebrities that they they admire, yeah, right? That's the power of the brand at this point. And I think that, and there's still power in brands, right? Sure. I mean, the, when you're Netflix, Disney+, mm -hmm. Plus, Hulu, YouTube, Snapchat, like, I mean, there's still brands out there that have that power. And I think even in the media space, there's, there's probably some network brands that still resonate. Um, you know, I think Comedy Central probably is, is mm -hmm. one of those, frankly. But, you know, when you start getting to, to other tiers, it's like, do people know where, no offense to AMC, but like Walking Dead, like, does everyone know that's an yeah. AMC or are they watching it on Netflix or Hulu and they don't really know where? I always laugh because you think about, you know, some of the biggest temple franchises in history, something like Harry Potter. You ask most people, you know, who made Harry Potter? They have no idea. They think, oh, magic, oh, it must be Disney, but it's a Warner Brothers property, yeah. right? And so I, I think of that in the lens of the OTT SVOD craze. And there's all these new entrants coming out. And, you know, unless you are Disney or HBO and have the strength of that programming brand and a proven track record of multiple series and people now recognize the quality of your brand, I think it's very hard to stand up your own service. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we, we've at Blue Ant, we've even tried, uh, Blue Ant tried, uh, uh, we have a nature service called Love Nature that we launched as SVOD over outside the U.S. And, and those niche sort of subscription services, I, I think are just hard. I mean, there's some successes, Curiosity Stream. Um, what's the anime one? Uh, Funimation. Funimation. Oh, Crunchyroll. Crunchyroll. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are some success stories. I mean, you never know how much of a success story there really are. But, you know, I think it can be done in, in sort of really micro niches, mm -hmm. maybe. But, yeah, I think the subscription's hard. And then, I mean, the AVOD OTT space is something that kind of we're pretty excited about. Mm -hmm. But even that one maybe shows, like, the power of brands, right? Because sometimes they launch with, you know... ABC News or some brand like that. But, you know, Pluto's had so much success now that they just want to launch their own channel. Pluto Cars, Pluto, you know, that that people want to watch content. They know they, that the brand maybe ne doesn't necessarily make as much. Sure, um, Pluto can just relevant. start doing original programming or acquire content yeah. cheaply. Not Although that being said, they also just launched a bunch of Viacom channels. Yeah. So what do I know? Yeah, <laughs> true. And it seems like Viacom is trying to aggregate its OTTS FOD strategy somewhat behind the Pluto brand. And I think actually NBC Universal has made a bit of a smart play here with Peacock because it's going to be an AVOD platform, which differentiates it significantly from the other competitors. You know, you have to be careful not to go down the road of what Sony Crackle became. But if, they, I mean, NBC still has some of the strongest comedy television programming, but I think, you know, with The Office and some of these other like really big pieces of IP, they can attract yeah. viewership. Yeah, and they, what, they just sold... Uh, um... I guess that was Warner Brothers. So because they don't have Friends, because Friends is going to be on HBO Max mm -hmm. um, with their you know, reunion show. Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting. I think at the end of the day, like how, how much do consumers have to spend on subscription services? I think it's always my question. Like at some point, there's a cap. Or 
Or at some point, they're just back to spending what they spent on cable, but instead they're buying it from Netflix, Hulu. But what's wrong with that, right? I think that's ultimately kind of where the ceiling lands. And, and we've seen what people are willing to pay for entertainment has increased mm -hmm. over time, but it's just, it's not going to come from cable anymore. And yeah. you see, you know, Dish is bleeding subscribers and yeah. uh, all the traditional cable and, and broadcast television is bleeding, but it's all shifting over to digital. So that's yeah. going to, you know, people are going to, I think, ultimately end up paying about the same amount. 100%. It'll just be built around passion programming and you'll have you know, one of the catch-all services in Netflix or in Amazon, but you might also have Love Nature, you might have a Crunchyroll and yeah. kind of augment, you know, maybe you have Shudder yeah, for yeah. horror programming, right? There's a lot of these kind of uh, passion programming alternatives. I mean, even maybe even flipping them on and off as like exactly. the shows there right? out there. It's Halloween, I want to watch horror stuff and yeah. now I don't care anymore. And yeah. now there's this new show I'm going to watch on this service. That's absolutely going to be happening. So let's talk a little bit about the second takeaway you had from your time at South Park Digital Studios which was the power of social media, right? I mean, you, you saw it firsthand, the growth of Facebook. You couldn't really experiment as much uh, on the YouTube playground, but obviously as a consumer, I'm sure you you witnessed that at that time. So in 2015, you joined Izzo, which is the parent company of Dance On, mm -hmm. as SVP of their studio business. What did you focus on during your time at Izzo? Yeah, so my role there was um, more in the business development side, um, trying to help grow the business there. And then I just had good timing because that was right around Go90 was launching too. So we wound up uh, doing a pretty big deal with them, as most people did, and made a, a ton of programming, both for Go90, but also for our own Facebook and YouTube page. Very much focused on dance and music. You know, that was the, the DNA of the brand. So we produce short form, mid form, long form content, you know, everything from a show about an influencer named Chachi Gonzalez to a dance competition show with Nigel Lithgow, kind of a, a wide variety of content, doing a lot of dance videos, uh, lyric videos, which were a thing. And now we're coming back again, I noticed on Instagram, but different things like that to, to help grow the brand on Facebook and YouTube and then generate content from, from other third parties. So you mentioned Go90. And at the time, there was this big craze around these mobile first SVOD services targeted at younger audiences. And sometimes it was, okay, yes, there's original programming, but oftentimes the value proposition was earlier access to influencer content or exclusive influencer short form content. Um, you Vessel, had full screen. Vessel, as well. Vessel, of course. <laughs> you know, what do you, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on Quibi, knowing what we now know from the, the failures of those other short form uh, SVOD services. What's your take on the future of Quibi? That's a loaded question. <laughs> Quibi is amazing, and I'm really excited to see it launch. I think someone's selling some shows to Quibi. Um, yeah, I didn't say that. Uh, trying at least. Um, no, I, you know what? I think it's interesting because I think their content strategy is a lot different than Go90. Um, I think that's, one, the most important thing. B, even in the small time, I mean, Go90 was what now? Like four years ago, right? Four or five years ago? Something like that. I mean, even how we, how consumers consume content has changed drastically in those four to five years. I mean, when you look at YouTube... Uh, you know, back then it was, you know, two to three minutes was sort of the max you wanted on YouTube. You know, now people are averaging 15 minutes, half hour per video on YouTube. So I think the, the viewing habits have changed a lot, even in that short period. Um, and I think short form has proven or mid form, I guess, with Quibi, has proven to be interesting to people to watch and, and both uh, interesting from a creative community to be able to create like strong kind of 10 to 15 minute episodes of, of content. You know, Snapchat is another good example. Uh, they're doing some really interesting things, both in scripted and non-scripted space at, you know, seven to eight minutes per episode. Uh, and people are watching it. I mean, we have seven seven Snapchat shows, I'm going to say, 
you know, we have- And it monetizes pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it monetizes great. We get, you know, a few million viewers per episode um, pretty regularly if the content's good. So I, I think there's something, I think it's going to, for Quibi, it's going to come down to what shows they have and how well they market it. Yeah. Um, and uh, if people are interested in the shows, that demographic that they're going after. So I'm, I'm intrigued by it. You know, as we said earlier, it's, I'm constantly amazed at how many different subscription services the world is interested in paying for. At the end of the day, it's about content. Content's king. And I think that's still true, right? That content's king. If there's good content, it's content people are going to watch, want to watch and you make sure they know about it, they're going to search it out and try to watch it. And clearly, narrative patterns have changed. We don't have to tell stories in just 22 or 44 minutes anymore. And not only have YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat changed that, but Netflix and Amazon have changed that approach significantly, particularly to your point in the last four or five years. I think the vertical to horizontal video is a bit gimmicky, and you're probably paying twice as much for content than you need to. But, you know, maybe those are some of the, the learning curve elements or like to your point, it's, it's all marketing exercise. So if they can get the big talent that they're getting and then attract viewers because there's this neat, unique viewing experience or value proposition, at least early on. And a lot of that also happens. could just be about launch, too, right? Like they don't really know yet what, how people are going to view this stuff. So let's produce it multiple ways. You know, after a few months, they'll have some good data, hopefully, that says, oh, you know what? Everyone's watching this in more traditional uh, aspect ratio, which is probably, I think, what you're getting to what people are going to want. But again, you know, it, 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 with it, I mean, they are going after the little slightly older demographic, but, you know, you know Snapchat is able to get away with vertical video, yeah. vertical video pretty easily and, and no one seems to care and yeah. no one asks for the switch. So. The, the circular video never really cut on, but <laughs> maybe one day. One day, one day. So for the last four years, you've served as SVP of Global Digital Networks for Blue Ant Media. And for those who aren't familiar, tell us a little bit more about Blue Ant. Yeah, so um, Blue Ant is a, a company based up in Toronto uh, that produces and distributes content, both premium and digital. So they own several cable brands up in Canada and that have a production studio that produces content for everyone from Netflix to Amazon to Hulu. I actually was hired uh, in a company called Omnia Media, which Blue Ant owns, which is its digital kind of play, essentially. So they bought Omnia pretty much right before I started, I think. And then Omni is a digital-first video company focused on gaming. So that's where I spend the majority of my time these days is on the Omni front. Yeah. And what does the gaming landscape look like in digital video? I mean, it's huge. It's funny. I was literally just working on this deck. But uh, in the younger demographic, well, actually, on YouTube, one in four uh, of YouTube users watch some sort of gaming video content on the platform in the U.S. And then when you look at the, at the younger demo, like 13 to 34, uh, that percentage goes up pretty significantly. Uh, and it's the second most watched form of content on YouTube after music. So it's it's massive on YouTube. It's massive on Facebook. It's, you know, Snapchat and TikTok is a great platform for gaming content these days. Instagram, you know, the thing about gaming content, you know, it's not just esports. It's not just Ninja. Uh, there's kind of a wide array of type of content that people are watching in the space. Everything from humor videos, you know, parody videos, making fun of their favorite video games, things like that to, yes, gameplay videos, people doing compilations of kind of amazing plays in gaming to more newsy type stuff. You know, it's a, it's a pretty wide variety. It's funny when I think about the evolution of YouTube, you know, when it came out 2005, 2006, people thought of YouTube as that place for cat videos and pirated content, right? Mm-hmm. Where can you watch a TV show yeah. that shouldn't be uploaded there? And then, you know, you kind of get into 2009, 2010, and people think of the platform as half gaming, half music. Mm-hmm. And fast forward to today, YouTube did a good job of positioning itself and kind of telling that branding story. 
but you know, you've got every type of content under the sun. Mm -hmm. And it seems like Twitch is going through a similar evolution where it started off gaming, there was a, a focus there from a live streaming standpoint, it made sense to target that audience. But now it's seeking to reposition its programming brand and expand to more verticals. Do you think they'll be successful? Do you think that's a, an exercise that they can accomplish? I mean, they're definitely trying. Um, you know, they've been trying for a while. You know, I think a lot of it, I mean, they have the Amazon money, so they're eventually going to figure it out, I think. But yeah, I mean, at the heart of it, their platform feels like gamers, and mainly gamers, so I think they have a hard time moving, moving beyond that. What's your take on some of the newer gaming streaming services like Caffeine or uh, like Mixer? Mixer? Yeah, I mean, I think you can put like Facebook gaming into that sure. group a little bit without their, you know, again, it's, this, it's the same issue. It's, it's uh, you know, can they get, I mean, they need the talent, right? They're bidding for the talent, the talent really following them. And there's kind of mixed, I'd say it's mixed on that, whether that's working yet or not. It kind of goes back to that earlier conversation on branding, right? Like when you talk about the influencer space, I think influencers have a harder time, like the influencer brands are, are huge, right? But it's hard for an influencer to take their audience from one of these big platforms to another platform. Because ultimately the platform owns your audience, right? They don't tell you who your subscribers are. They don't tell you who your followers are on Instagram or Facebook. No, and, and at the end of the day, like, you know, they are probably watching a lot of you on YouTube, but they probably have, you know, they're subscribing to other channels. You're not the only person on that channel. So I think it's it's hard for me as a consumer to say, oh, I'm going to switch to Mixer now because that's where my favorite, you know, Twitch streamer has. But wait, I still want to watch all these other guys too. So it's, it's you know, how do you, it's, it's a change of consumer behavior that I think is hard for, it's hard for one influencer to do on their own. Um, and I think that's what's going to make it harder for some of these other platforms is, is right now, Twitch, I think for a Twitch consumer, it's like habit, right? Like you come home and instead of turning on the TV or turning on the radio, you're turning on Twitch and you're looking to see who's on and what's going on right now on Twitch. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because whereas the consumer behavior on YouTube is, I'm going to search for a specific piece of content, the behavior on Twitch and other streaming services tends to be more like what we kind of used to see with channel surfing on television, right? It's like, okay, what's happening right now? Yep. Oh, this is lo losing my interest. I'm going to jump over here and watch a little bit of that. And it's like, oh, look, some 30,000 people are watching that channel. I wonder what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what it is. I would, I would push back that the, I would push back these days on YouTube that it's about searching. Mm. Um, I think that's, that's, that's true for a portion of the YouTube audience. But if, if with, with the power of suggested videos oh, yeah, it's a lot of on YouTube, that YouTube, I think, is very slowly becoming a, you know, people always lean in versus lean back experience, that YouTube is becoming somewhat of a lean back experience in that way, too, that, you know, people are putting YouTube on their OTT, on their TV, whether they have a big Samsung or through their Xbox, and playing a video of their favorite YouTuber, and then sitting back and, you know, watching his next 15 minute video and then watching the next 10 recommended videos that come out after that. Yeah, people used to say, if you want to go to a platform to spend time, you would go to Netflix. And if you want to go to a platform to kill time, you would watch YouTube. And it seems like that's changing. We're seeing more premium content appearing on YouTube. I, you know, I think of things like I watch late night talk show hosts on YouTube now yep. right, rather than on television. Yeah. Uh, and so that's premium entertainment that I'm consuming in a lean back environment on this mm -hmm. platform. And now Netflix has much different competition, not just from YouTube, but from Amazon, Apple TV, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that's kind of how I watch Saturday Night Live. Right? Exactly. Like, I mean, the, the uh, is watching it on, on YouTube. Yeah, I think that's true. And then also, I always, you know, that, that phrase premium content still kind of just rubs me the wrong way a little bit. Having been on the sort of the, 
I guess what's considered the premium content side, and now being much on, of which is reality TV. Yeah, <laughs> now that now 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 I'm on the digital YouTube side, which I guess uh-huh. isn't the premium side, but some YouTubers out there, whether it's like Dude Perfect or you know, I mean, they high quality production. At the end of the day, to me, what what makes content premium or not premium shouldn't be the quality of the content, but whether or not people want to watch it. For sure, um, it's really a misnomer at this point. I should say long form and short form. Yeah, yeah. I actually uh, sometimes joke with some of my colleagues, like they're, they're on the legacy content <laughs> and we make the content yeah, people watch. That's awesome. And so speaking of that, what's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the media space, what would they be? If anyone's from Quibi, Quibi's going to be a, a wonderful success. And uh, please get in touch with Greg. <laughs> please buy more stuff. No, um, you know, I'm really, I'm really excited about the OTT AVOD space. You know, I think that is going to continue to grow. As a friend of mine who's not in the industry, when I was out to dinner with him in DC, he was I was explaining to him what it is. He's like, oh, like TV used to be. I'm like, yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. It's like a, just an easy consumer proposition. Like you turn on the TV and there's TV with commercials. Like it's a concept people people get. So I think that's one. You know, I think podcasting is is another one. Continue to see growth there. And then I think, you know, the continuing trend of advertising moving, advertising dollars moving to digital, you know, in particular within our space, in the gaming space, more and more money focused on sort of the influencer side of the business and not necessarily just through like sponsored callouts and things like that, but even just ads around their content, things along those lines that it's a, you know, the, this demographic, it's, it's just hard to reach them anywhere else these days. So are you seeing more non-endemic advertisers coming into the gaming space? Not yet, but we want them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, actually that's not true. I, I say we haven't seen it yet, but you know, I think, uh, when you look at esports, right, Mercedes Benz is a big sponsor of ESL, uh, which is a gaming league around Dota. They just re-upped their deal, uh, through the end of the year or two. And that's a great example of, you know, Mercedes Benz is not the brand you think of when you think of esports, but the reality is, you know, people who are into games tend to be a lot younger than the general population, but are making the same money. They work, they're they're real people. You know, and Mercedes wants to make sure that they're top of mind when those people have the money to buy a Mercedes. So, you know, that's why they're sponsoring things like that. Uber Eats, Subway, Wendy's, like there's kind of a long list. Yeah, a lot of the QSR brands. Yeah, QSRs, yeah. snack brands. You know, some of those are almost endemic in some ways. Like, sure. you know, is, is Red Bull endemic to gaming? Like... <laughs> You know, it's not a game, but, yeah. you know, pretty much all gamers drink it. Yeah. So um, where do you draw the line with what an endemic brand is? Sure. And what does the future hold for Blue Land Media? On the Omnia side, on my side of the business, it's uh, just continue to see our brands grow, continue to develop our ad sales business, our big brands, uh, RK Cloud uh, and BCC. You know, our big priority there is we've had a lot of success on YouTube and Snapchat with some of the brands, Wisecrack as well. But it's really looking to be on all the platforms that our audience is at. So, you know, we're aggressive on TikTok and, and kind of always keeping a finger on the pulse on like what's the, the next thing and where do we want to make sure we have content. If you were starting a business in the digital media space today, what would you do? And kind of the impetus behind this question is a lot of people that I interview are entrepreneurs or innovators in the digital media space. So I try to ask, you know, what's the white space out there? What are people not doing that people should consider? I mean, I have ideas all the time. So I'm like, (laughs) what's your one I want to talk to? I always find the ad tech space kind of interesting. And it it feels like a place that hasn't really ever been optimized in our field, particularly as there's more and more platforms to deal with. So, you know, whether you're on OTT, Snapchat, Facebook, Zumo, Pluto, 
you know, there's kind of a long list, um, you know, and everything from just reporting on viewership cross-platform to, you know, how do you measure advertising across platform? You know, there's some people, Tubular does a good job in kind of the reporting side on some things. And a lot of that is a difficult problem to solve because each of the platforms is a bottleneck, as you know, uh, <laughs> as well. Yeah. Uh, and I know it's a problem you like to try to work on as well. But, you know, I think no one's really kind of cracked that nut yet. It is tricky, especially since those platforms choose not to share most of that data, right? Yeah. And so we're left with, you know, Tubular. And then, of course, that's an improvement over Nielsen and Comscore. Yeah. But that's kind of what we have from legacy media, which was, and I joke, the lie that we all agreed to believe one day, yeah. right? It's just this, like, estimated measurement program. It just, it doesn't apply to digital where you have perfect measurement all the time. It's yeah. just a matter of, you know, can we collect that and model audiences across platforms? And that's where I, I would think at some point, like some one of the big agencies is gonna, like at some point is gonna be spending so much money with all these platforms that is gonna say, hey, we need solid reporting across all you guys. Yeah. Like we, we, this just doesn't work for us with how much money we're spending. And in some ways, I think that's, I don't know if it's better for the platforms, but it's definitely better. I mean, similar to, I think in some ways why it was better for cable channels than it was for cable operators. Like, it would be good for, for people like us, right? Because, you know, you go to look at some of our channels on some platforms and it's like, yeah, we're like not the biggest. But when you start to aggregate them across all of them and able to sell a media across all of them, suddenly it becomes a, a, a little more interesting exercise. Well, Greg, where can people find out more about you and more about Blue Ant? For Omnia Media, you can go omniamedia.com or blueantmedia.com. For me, I'm not that interesting, but I'm on I'm all, all the socials, LinkedIn, et cetera. Very good. Well, Greg, thanks again for sharing your story and kind of walking us through the journey from traditional entertainment to, you know, digital and uh, all the lessons learned along the way. It's been great. Cool. Thanks. Great to see you, James. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.